Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hello and welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter and the founder of aggrad.com that connects students and young professionals to hiring agribusinesses. Well, you might notice a bit of an extra giddiness in my voice here today, and that is certainly due to our guest, which I'll, I'll get to here in just a minute. If I could open the show today by just asking you for one small request, you're going to want to listen to the show first. I get it. But if you would afterwards, please just take 30 seconds, head over to iTunes and leave us an honest rating about the show. Our ratings, especially the positive ones, help people as they are going through the iTunes search engine, looking for content about agriculture to stumble upon our little podcast here and listen to the stories that we share. So if you're getting any value out of this or any of our episodes, I would just sure love it and be very much appreciative if you'd go and leave us a positive rating and review on iTunes so that more and more people can discover the incredible stories that are going on in the industry of agriculture. But let me get into the content here today because it is just extremely exciting for me. I never dreamed that when we started this podcast just five months ago now, we would have a guest on our show of the caliber of Dr. Temple Grandin. If you have not seen the HBO film Temple Grandin, which is about her life, you need to see that. I don't call things a must-see very often. I'm not speaking in hyperbole here. This is an incredible story. And what's the most phenomenal aspect of the story is the fact that it is almost entirely true. As Dr. Grandin's going to tell you here today, there are certain aspects that are compressed or timelines that are sort of condensed so that, you know, the, the film can flow. But the facts of the movie are all absolutely true. And it will blow your mind the caliber of individual of Dr. Temple Grandin, the challenges that she has overcome both personally and professionally to revolutionize an industry as old and as set in its ways as agriculture can sometimes be. She is an inspiration to anyone with autism. She's an inspiration to anyone trying to break into an industry where maybe they are not exactly like the establishment. And her story is just incredible. So as I started communicating with the folks on her team to set up this interview, I was getting more and more excited that it would happen, but I was never 100% sure that it would until out of the blue and, and unexpectedly, I got a call on my cell phone from a voice that I recognized immediately as Dr. Dr. Grandin. I dropped everything that I was doing and immediately started recording our conversation. So I... No, she was extremely busy. In fact, she was in the car. And so we only had a few minutes of time. I wish this interview was about 10 times longer as I go back and listen to it now. But any time that we get to spend with someone like Dr. Grandin, there is going to be value there. And so I'm just absolutely ecstatic to bring this interview to you here today. The one caveat I will say at the beginning is you'll have to excuse me. I was was nervous. I was excited. I was just on the edge of my seat as she was talking. And, and occasionally I got so excited that I interrupted her. And uh, this isn't my best performance as an interviewer, but I think you'll be able to look past that because the value Dr. Grandin brings to the interview is 
more than enough to compensate for my inadequacies as an interviewer. So I know you're going to get a ton of value out of this interview with Dr. Grandin. For the two of you out there who don't know who she is, she is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. In the late 90s, she started working with companies such as McDonald's and Wendy's on their supply chain, particularly in the area of animal behavior. How is livestock handled that goes to slaughter? There are practices that Dr. Grandin has put in place that have revolutionized the industry. One thing I find particularly interesting about what you're about to hear is the fact that she said, in most cases, it's not needing new infrastructure or new equipment. It's just new management practices. And those are often the most difficult changes to make is just your approach. So I know you're going to love this interview with Dr. Temple Grandin. So honored to have Dr. Temple Grandin on the podcast today. Dr. Grandin, thank you for being here. It's really wonderful to be here. Now, I read that Temple is actually your middle name. Have you always gone by that? I've always gone by that. I'm, the only reason I, why my first name is out on the Internet now is because, unfortunately, when they changed the ID requirements at the airport, I was forced to use the whole name. I see. But, I, but I've been Temple Grandin professionally forever. And I still use Temple Grandin on everything, except my official IDs. And that's how it leaked out. Yeah, that's right. Now, you are one of the few, if, if only, that, that is heralded by, by both the commercial livestock side of the industry and animal rights groups. What's the journey been like to get to that point? Well, basically, uh, let's just start out, how did I get into agriculture to start with? And I think this is really important for your show, because you're um, going to be talking to a lot of our students trying to decide what they, they want to do. I was introduced to beef cattle when I was 15 on my aunt's ranch. This brings up the really important thing that students get interested in things that they get exposed to. Now, being a woman in the man's world of the feed yards in the, in the early 70s was not easy. And you had to be twice as good as a guy. And I started out my business in the 70s designing facilities. Actually, I found that selling the thing, the piece of equipment, was a whole lot easier than the management side of just getting the people to handle cattle right. Now, today, cattle handling is a whole lot better. My student, former uh, student, Ruth Boy, already did a big survey and just got it published in the Professional Animal Scientist, and, and, and cattle handling has vastly improved compared to the 70s and 80s and the 90s. Thanks, thanks to you, a lot. Well, I was very much involved in that. I, another thing I want to emphasize to students, do internships. Every summer, do different internships in ag-related things. Try on jobs. Like I have a student right now that's doing a whole lot of stuff with a beef uh, packing plant, and she's finding out she's loving it. Hmm. Now, there might be another student that might prefer to work for the farm credit union. So you need to try out jobs. I think that's fantastic advice. Definitely something that we advocate for as well. Now, for, for you, you're able to approach animal agriculture, you know, with such an empathetic perspective. What do you tell people when they ask, is it ethical to eat animals? Well, I've done a lot of thinking about that, and I feel very strongly that we've got to give the animals a good life. Now, two years ago, our department had a big international cattle seminar, and they invited a crop scientist to this seminar. And I learned a really interesting thing I didn't know until two years ago. 
that the very best soils were created by herds of grazing bison. That's the Maui soils in Iowa and Illinois. And that was kind of a light bulb moment. Animals are part of the land. Hmm. And the uh, grazing done right improves life. You can do it wrong in wreck land. We need to be doing a lot more things with the forages and crop rotation and stuff like that. Um, I went to the outback two years ago. And you have this huge amount of land that's half almost half the size of the U.S. that's too arid to crop. The only way you can raise food on that land is grazing animals. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a very important point. With all the accomplishments you've had, in, as you look to the future of the industry, where, where do you think is the biggest room for improvement in animal agriculture? Well, first of all, we need to get young people interested in agriculture. Mm-hmm. I mean, the average age of farmers is something like 50. Um, but young people are only going to get interested if they get exposed. And we need to make sure that the high schools keep the FFA and the 4-H programs, because this is where, where students get introduced to agriculture. Because what I've been learning about careers, and I've been doing a lot of talks to a lot of people about how careers get started. High school is critical on getting careers started. That's where my beef cattle introduction first began. Absolutely. Yeah, those are pivotal years. I know they were for me. FFA changed my life in, in high school for me. And I absolutely agree with, with that as well. Absolutely got to keep FFA programs. And right now in this country, we have a huge shortage of skilled trades, things like diesel mechanics, welders. I know the big beef packing plants are having a hard time replacing. They're really smart, quirky, talented welding people that can build anything. Um, and this brings up another thing I talk about a lot, autism groups. You got a lot of guys now that are getting diagnosed, mildly autistic, ADHD, maybe they're dyslexic, and, and they're not taking welding in high school. And they're getting addicted to video games instead of, uh, you know, building really interesting things at the large beef plants. Yeah, definitely. One thing I know you talk about a lot is people who are visual learners and, and what we can do yes. to help people who are, who are visual learners. What are some things we could do in the agriculture industry to serve those, those folks? Well, a lot of people in, 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 that are good at things, animal uh, stockmanship, for example, tend to be visual thinkers. A lot of the people that are really good at inventing new farm equipment are visual thinkers. And I'm getting worried that our educational system is screening some of them out because I was terrible at algebra. And the thing that saved me in college was in 67, when I went to college, uh, finite math, which was probability and statistics, was the required math class. And I don't know what the teaching of some of the schools. I was out at a college just in September, and you have kids that may, they may know algebra, but they can't find the area of a circle. They can't find the area of a room or the volume of a tank. Mm-hmm. You know, the old-fashioned practical math that you really do need. Do you think there's anything about agriculture that's, that makes it kind of uniquely suited for, for folks with autism? Well, there's some people, um, well, you get the kids that are dyslexic and ADHD, too, and Autism goes all the way from Einstein, who had no speech until age three, to somebody who can't dress themselves. But there's a lot of work with a lot of millwrights when we are building ranch jobs, feed yard jobs. Well, today they probably get some kind of a special ed label. And the thing that saved them in my generation was that welding class. Hmm. I know a guy who's dyslexic and stutters, and he owns a big metal fabrication company. He was saved by high school welding. That's a great story. Well, what's one thing you wish everyone knew about autism? Well, first of all, it's extremely variable. I, when I was a little kid, I looked really bad, uh, no speech, uh, you know, a lot of uh, rocking and other behavior. If you have little three-year-olds that are not talking, 
you've got to work with them. The worst thing you can do with a three-year-old that's not talking is, is to let them uh, zone out on electronics all day. Or you've got to get the video game playing under control. Introduce them to a lot of different things. Take what they're good at. When I was in third grade, I was good at art, and that was always encouraged. And you've got to learn how to do lots of different kinds of art. Build on strengths. But kids also have to be introduced to stuff to find out the things they're going to like. I got introduced to beef cattle, and I found out that was something I was interested in. Students don't get interested in things they don't uh, aren't exposed to. Uh, yeah, it's a great point, exposing them to a lot of different things. For you, I know you, I mean, between the books you write, the courses you teach, what what takes up most of your time now, or what's your average day look like? Well, I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements. I've been doing a lot of talks at colleges and a lot of other different places, because I want to see the kids that are kind of quirky and different get out there and be successful. So I do um, talks at colleges. I do talks at autism meetings. I do talks at livestock meetings. I just did a conference today called PINC, which is kind of a conference of a lot of different types of uh, of speakers, uh, people that did art things, and uh, people have done engineering things. There was a guy that uh, gave a talk who photographs bears really close up and personal. Hmm. Do you enjoy the speaking? Yeah, I do. And I think I enjoy it when a parent comes up to me and says, well, my kid's got a good job because uh, I took your advice or read the books, or I really helped them out with their cattle. If a student decides to go to Colorado State and pursue a, a degree in animal science, will they get the pleasure of having you as an instructor? Well, yes. I do my livestock uh, behavior handling class each semester. And if they sign up for that class, then they could have me as an instructor. What's your favorite thing about teaching? Well, I like see, I like students sort of, you know, just getting it. And one time in my class, I had a I had a student actually was a wildlife biologist, and uh, he learned a lot of things that were helpful to him. I had another student who was a lady who worked in the feed yard, and I showed him how to do a little movement pattern when you walk back by the cattle to get them to move forward. Then she went home and tried it out at the feed yard and came back and says, "Yeah, it worked." That makes me happy. A, a lot of us, myself included, first discovered your, your work and your life through the movie Temple Grandin. Yes, that's right. What was that like to have a movie made about you, and what's changed since? Well, it's made me a lot busier. <laughs> and they, the thing I liked about the movie is they showed how my visual thinking works, and all the projects in the movie are accurate. They were built from original drawings and, and all the, the, the uh, optical illusion room, the dip bats. And the, and the gate you could open up in the car, I actually did all those projects. Is there anything in the movie that's not exactly accurate? Well, they had to compress stuff and move stuff around. But the uh, cattle were shown accurately. Uh, there was a real squeeze shoot in the movie, and I was really pleased to you know see that. What's your favorite species to work with? Well, I like beef cattle. I mean, that's what I've worked with the most. But I like all animals. I was just up at Quebec at a big pig conference and went out to pig farm and that was really good are there any species you find just especially challenging challenging in which way oh just that uh, you don't seem to the work is a little more difficult for you than if it were maybe cattle which you just have a connection well, and bison are probably a bit more challenging than than um, cattle but i observed a very interesting thing when i went to new zealand this summer i went out to deer farm a red deer now I think they're starting the process of domestication because they've gotten a whole lot bigger, and they were able to handle them in open pens that you would have never been able to have done 30 years ago. 30 years ago, they used to have to handle the deer in a dark building 
Otherwise, they'd be bouncing off the walls. And now we were just in an open pen and right up, you know, five feet away from uh, full-grown deer, and they were fine. Wow, so they're, they're slowly domesticating then? I think they're slowly domesticating the deer. They're just not as flighty. What's something you're, you're working on that you don't know that will we'll solve in your lifetime? Well, the good news is the handling has improved. That's the good news. And the thing that frustrates me is there's a lot of good things that ag has done, and the public doesn't know about it. Um, I'll talk a little bit about some of the things I've done that improve slaughter plants and talked about how I worked with McDonald's on the animal welfare audits. And they go, McDonald's does animal welfare audits? I'll tell somebody on an airplane about that, and they just can't believe it. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of good things that have been done, and a lot of people don't know anything about it. And that, to me, is frustrating. Is it true that when you first made progress in your work, it was because of companies like McDonald's? It was coming from the demand side, the mandates on the food processing well, industry? Well, the first thing, when I see, I've been in this industry since the 70s. And actually, getting people to buy equipment actually wasn't that hard. The thing that had always been hard was getting people to operate it correctly. And then I found in the, in the late 70s and 80s that employees stayed trained better if I trained the manager, convinced the manager that it's important to handle cattle quietly. But the biggest change took place when I started working for McDonald's and Wendy's in 1999. We used a very, very simple scoring system to evaluate the meatpacking plants, like what percentage of cattle can you shoot dead on the first shot? And um, when I first started on this, only 30% could do that in 1996 because the equipment was broken and then when the mcdonald's and wendy's audit started in 1999 that jumped up uh, just about all the plants hmm. a lot of the things that we had to do to correct problems was maintenance and simple changes like non-slip flooring and changing lighting i was amazed to hear your story about the the checklist that you incorporated how much of an impact well, just that simply checklist is really works it's very simple it's like traffic rules for meat plants. You have to get a 95% or better first shot stunning score. Uh, no more than 1% of the cattle falling. Everything dead when you hang it on the rail. No more than three animals out of 100 mooing and bellowing in the stunning area. And you have to get 75% in with no electric prod. And then, there, then of course, no acts of abuse. Things it, like beating animals, uh, poking sensitive areas, dragging downers slamming doors on animals on purpose, things like that. And the notion of a checklist was unheard of before you, you had incorporated. Is that right? Well, that was, no, the checklist was something. That was one of my inventions. Yeah. And it's very simple, and it's an outcome-based measure. Um, you know, the, you, let's look at something like vocalization, for example. That's a real sensitive measure for trouble during handling. If you put an animal in a restraint device and they moo and you squeeze them, you're hurting them with the, with the squeeze shoe. Right. Or you bang them on the head, he's going to move. Or you poke him with the prod, he's going to move. Or maybe he's slipping and skidding around, he's going to move. Uh, they moo when you're getting them into the restrainer or, or uh, while they're restrained, um, you have something you need to fix. And most of the plants right now, they're doing just great. They have about a 2% vocalization score in the restrainer. And then I developed a lot of equipment, like the center track restrainer system. And you can see that on Beef Plant Video Tour with Temple Brandon. Is that on YouTube? Yeah. Beef Plant Video Tour. Okay, we'll make sure we link yeah, that beef up. Plant, beef Plant Video Tour with Temple Brandon. How long from when you first had these ideas of ways we should change animal handling to when the industry started to adopt them? 
Well, the equipment designs were shown in the movie. That, that they adopted right away. You know, what I have found is people want the thing. You know, the magic new uh, a piece of equipment, a computer program, a drug or something like that. They want the thing more than they want the management. And the management side of it, getting them to operate things right, that was much more difficult than selling them the equipment. Things really changed in the meatpacking industry on the management side was in that 1999 and year 2000 when I implemented the McDonald's and Wendy's audits. I saw more change happen that year than I had in my whole entire career. And the thing that's really good is that 75 plants, beef and pork, only three had to build something expensive. Everybody else, it was simple changes, repairs on stunners, uh, non-slip flooring, changing lighting, put up a solid panel so you wouldn't see people walking by, training, moving smaller groups of animals, getting electric prods out of people's hands, a whole lot of simple things that add up to a big thing. So most of it was management. Yeah, I would say, yes, management and simple repairs. What, what do you like to read on a regular basis? Well, I like to read a lot of science stuff. I get science and nature. I just love reading about new scientific discoveries in lots of different fields. It's some of my favorite reading. You have been able to to take what, what many might consider a challenge and, and turn it into what, what might be perceived as your greatest strength. I think that lesson uh, could be applied to everybody. If we could figure out how to take you know what might be considered a challenge and turn it into a well, strength. Let's say, let's say you take a kid. That's labeled mild autism, fully verbal kid, or maybe he's a little dyslexic, or maybe he's ADHD. Take what the kid is good at and build on it. Hmm. The other big thing I'm seeing is, is I'm seeing kids get a label and they get too babied, and they're not learning basic skills like how to shop. And the other big problem I'm seeing is video game addictions. And they're having bad outcomes. They are not going to work for the video game industry. If they did that, I would not be criticizing it. And get them out doing things. The other thing that kids have got to learn how to do is learn how to work. When I was 13, my mother got me a sewing job. And when I was 15 and 16, I was cleaning horse stalls every day. And then I did internships when I was in college. This is then the kids that are a bit quirky and different. They need to start getting um, volunteer jobs in middle school to learn that discipline of being on a schedule doing a job outside the home. Dr. Grandin, in your, in your TED Talk, you advocate for getting different minds together to work together. H- how can we do that? All right, let's give an example of where the different minds work together. Okay, we're building a great big Cargill plant or a great big Tyson plant. Or back when I was doing it, it would have been a big Montfort plant. And look at how is the work divided up. And the visual thinkers like me were the drafting people. They play the whole entire plant out. All the complicated conveyors, would they, they would design that stuff. But then you have the quirky guys down in the shop. And, and these guys, they could invent like a new hide puller, some really creative piece of equipment. And then what's a degreed engineer do? The more mathematical person, he's going to do boilers, refrigeration, steam systems, roof trusses, soil compaction, the more mathematical things. But you need to have the whole entire team to make a really good plant. Or you take something like an iPhone. Steve Jobs was an artist. An artist made the interface. The engineers had to make the inside of the phone work. If there's someone young... Some examples. Those are great examples. If if there's someone young out there listening to this podcast and and saying, I want to make my mark just like Dr. Grandin has, what advice would you give that person, specifically in the agriculture industry? In the agriculture industry, 
if they're in college, do internships. You've got to figure out what part of the industry you want to be in. Also, be ready to do long, hard, sustained work. I, I just, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast. I am very humbled that you were willing to take the time for us here today. And thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to sharing this with our audience. It was really great to talk to you. And uh, we need to make sure all our schools keep our FFA programs. Absolutely got to keep those programs. You're speaking my language. I'm right there with you. Thank you, and Dr. We also Grant. need to be supporting 4-H so we get younger kids interested in ag. And a lot of these kids that are kind of quirky and different, where they're going to get friends is through showing cattle or, or uh, maybe being in theater or being in band. It's going to be shared interests. How about a small engine repair class for middle school kids in 4-H? Because we need mechanics. We've got a gigantic shortage of mechanics right now. Yes, we do. Well, well thank you so much again, Dr. Grand, and I, I look forward to okay. sharing this. All right. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Really an honor. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Man, so cool to have Dr. Grandin on the Future of Agriculture podcast. I'm still kind of nerding out from that interview. I was so excited to talk to her. I hope that my excitement and my nervousness wasn't distracting from her core message because it's so valuable to anyone interested in agriculture and, and for that matter, not interested in agriculture. She's just an inspiration in, in somebody who is just one of a kind. And I really enjoyed that. I know you're probably thinking as I am, I wish that interview was about five times as long because she could have just continued to bring valuable content, gems, tweetables over and over and over again. Well, the good news is that she does have a lot of great content online. The YouTube video she mentioned, her TED Talk, go rewatch the HBO special about her life. There is some, some good resources that I can point you to from here. As I mentioned in the intro, I would sure appreciate it if you would just take some time to go on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. I don't make money from this podcast. I don't have sponsors. I certainly am not asking you for any money, but I would just appreciate 30 seconds of your time if you could just leave us a rating and review. Where that's valuable is if people are scanning iTunes for content about agriculture, I'd really love for them to find this podcast to see the real stories of the people behind production agriculture, agribusiness, research, uh, in advocacy. So thank you very much for those of you who have left a review. I think we've got 11 or 12 so far, but would sure appreciate a whole lot more. I'm not much of a quotes guy, but I do have one that I thought was fitting for this episode here today, and it's from Howard Thurman. The quote is, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Thank you so much for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com, that's A-G-G-R-A-D.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.